morning. Where were you in spring of 1982? Think about that for just a second. Somebody giggled over there because you're like, wow, that was like the 1900s. Like, I, thanks, Cole. That makes me feel so much better. Where were you in 1982? Specifically on March 31st, 1982. Can you remember? Do you have an idea? Trucking across the country. Well, I wasn't trucking across the country. I didn't have my driver's license. I was probably um, in first grade at the time. I was, you know, yeah, I was six years old at the time. I don't, I don't really recall what I was doing then. But that was an important day. Maybe, maybe not for you, maybe not for a lot of people, but, but for several people over on the West Coast, big deal, especially for the Alpine Meadows Ski Resort. Now, I don't know if anybody of you may remember that. I've just learned about it recently. Uh, Alpine Meadows um, is a, a resort uh, near Lake Tahoe. Uh, it's a beautiful little community. The skiing is incredible. They have these, these bowls and, and all this amazing uh, ski runs. It's not near as nice as the one a few miles down the road that hosted the Olympics several years prior, but it was a, a really happening place. But there was a problem with Alpine Meadows is because it had all these great ski runs, it also was prone to avalanches. In fact, it is one of the few ski resorts in North America that's rated as a class A as far as avalanches. And if you talk to people who are in that arena, in that area, they'll tell you it's an A plus, 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 and everything else is way below it. Just the way that it's built and structured, there was always the opportunity of an avalanche. And so they stayed on top of this as best uh, as they could, and they would constantly uh, drop dynamite early in the morning and try to simulate, have these mini avalanches that would keep the, the large ones from, from backing up and just pushing forward. In fact, what I thought was really interesting is they had an artillery gun from World War II that they would aim at the mountain and just shoot off. And, and like you can imagine, this huge gun on wheels, they'd shoot it and it would, it would fly backwards and you'd see that projectile hitting the mountain and just boom! And watching that snow start to slide down. The two days prior to March 31st, they had had just a blizzard and had between six and seven feet of snow. So much so that the people in charge of that resort said, we just, we can't have anybody here. It's not safe. And so they, they closed off the ski runs, but they had the, the ski people up there, the workers up there, they were monitoring it. They had gone up early. They were still trying to, to, to detonate bombs and allow this avalanche to occur. But the, the conditions had gotten so bad that one of the places that they needed to get to to try to, to set off these, these 
arms and simulate a, a small avalanche they just couldn't get to. They actually left their, their dynamite, they hit it on one part and said, we can't get across over there, and they began to go down. Well, I'm talking about this because you can imagine what happened on March 31st. Even if it didn't happen in your world at that time where you were living, it happened there. The avalanche began, and because it began in, in really four different locations, they all came together. Mass of snow came, and it hit the lodge where four people were staying, ski workers, and it hit, and it just blew through, knocking walls out. There were three different people who were just down the road. They had gone there to stay in a resort and they couldn't go skiing. So they thought that uh, the two, these two friends and one of the friend's daughter, they were just going to go to the lodge because they heard that there was food in there and they were bored and wanted to get out. They were heading there. They got caught up in there. A father and his 11-year-old daughter and his friend. And, and then there was one more who was up. He's the one who saw the avalanche, Jake. And he's the one who got on the radio and screamed first, avalanche, but even on his snowmobile, he couldn't get away fast enough. And by the time the snow had settled, people realized we're in big trouble. And they started searching missing people. The four in the lodge... The two gentlemen along with a, uh, with a daughter, and then Jake who was at the top. And they began searching frantically. After just a few days, they had only found three bodies. And then right towards the end of that, they found a couple more. So they had six bodies recovered, but no one was alive. And there was one man there who was taking it especially hard. His name was Jim Plinn. He was the avalanche forecaster for Alpine Meadows. And he had tried desperately to keep that place safe. He's the one who said, we can't let anybody come up on the slopes. But one of the things they didn't do is they didn't block the road. They didn't close the lodge. And that's what he kept going over in his mind as they were digging, if I just close that gate, if we just send everybody home, we wouldn't be digging. But the problem was, is the snow kept falling. It was relentless over and over again. So much so that, that the snow at the top was accumulating at levels that, that Jim knew it wasn't going to be long if this was going to happen again. And so what would happen was they would, they would search all the way in the daytime until they lost light. And then early in the morning, as soon as they could see, they would go up there. They, they actually got a, a noose uh, helicopter that, that came and sat down. They wanted it to get some pictures. And they said, we need you to unload your stuff and take us back up there because we need to drop dynamite at, at the top. This is not safe. And the pilot agreed, and they're going up. And you could tell the pilot is nervous because this is not what he normally does. They normally take pictures, not 
drop dynamite out. And the guy who's in charge of this is holding dynamite. He says, it's okay, it's, it's safe. Like, this is, it, it's not going to blow up. And the pilot said, don't tell me anything. I just want to know where I need to go. Because it was so dangerous. And they kept dropping. They kept shooting the artillery morning long. They were just trying to get that avalanche done away with. And so they, they could start digging again. And finally, they would just go out there. And then after two days, the snow kept falling. They couldn't get the, the snow packed at the top to release. And finally, Jim made the decision. He said, we've got to stop. He says, we've lost six for sure. We've most lo likely lost two more. We can't risk dozens, possibly hundreds of workers getting caught up in a second avalanche. That's probably going to happen. And people were confused and furious and bewildered that they were walking away knowing that there were still two people somewhere at that resort. And that next morning it snowed and snowed and snowed. And they couldn't get on the mountain. And then the day after that, it snowed even more. Whiteout conditions couldn't even allow the helicopter to get up to try to release that possible next avalanche. And then finally on the fifth day, the snow stopped, the sun came out, and they began to resume their work. Oh, but there's one more thing I didn't tell you. Two days prior, when Jim was announcing that they were going to be stopping the search, there was a dog handler who had her dog there searching. And the dog had been searching for several days. The problem was, the dog kept hitting on everything. Anytime there was a, a boot or a beanie or a glove, it kept barking and they kept trying to find something. It, was, it, it just turned out almost to be hopeless. But right as Jim was announcing that they needed to quit, the handler came and said, my dog's really excited. I believe that she's telling me that not only did she find a body, she thinks that the person is alive. Well, just before the avalanche, they knew where everyone had been. And so they were convinced that it was this young lady named Anna. That, that she had to be down there and she was alive even after two days. People were mad. And Jim said, I just cannot risk more people getting hurt. And so on day five, on April 5th, they resumed their search. And they go immediately back to the spot where this dog had hit on. And they start digging frantically and they pull away this piece of wood and all of a sudden they see a hand reach up and grab snow and go back in. See, for five days, Anna had been caught in that resort building. These lockers 
had fallen over and landed on a bench right beside her and trapped her in. She didn't recall the first couple of days she had such a severe concussion. She said, all I wanted was to sleep because that's the only way I could get rid of the pain. She didn't know where she was. She didn't know who she had been with. She had no recollection of anything. In fact, as she heard uh, some noises, she thought maybe the dynamite went off in that resort where she was staying. That's the only thing that she could figure out. On day two, she heard voices. And she began screaming as loud as she could. She didn't know that the people up there couldn't hear her. In fact, she screamed so much that she was hoarse and, and damaged her throat. The problem was, though, ironically, even though she was buried in snow, all the surroundings, all the wood around her prevented her from getting to any of it. And so she spent five days freezing cold without any water. She was so out of it that when they pulled the wood away, her only thought was, I can get to snow so I can eat it and, and be able to survive. They pulled Anna out. It would be weeks before she would learn of what had really taken place. That just moments before the avalanche, she was looking down the hallway at her boyfriend, Frank, who was standing there. And she lost him. In all of the eight people buried, Anna was the only survivor. Five days. But what strikes me most odd is the situation that Jim Plin was in when he decided it's just not safe. We have to walk away. And thankfully, his decision didn't cost the life of Anna. But she laid there for two more days. As a result, the frostbite set in and less than a month after she was pulled out, they had to amputate her leg. And her response was, I'm just so thankful to be alive. In years following the tragedy at Alpine Meadows, people continually leaned on the strength that she showed and the joy that she had when she could have been miserable and bitter and angry. As she she said, I just want to live. You see, I don't know where you were in March of 1982, but I, I know where you are almost 41 years later. You're in Hobbs, New Mexico. You're sitting in a church building. And you're anxious and you're ecstatic. And I, I, want, I just want to say you're almost giddy about studying Mark 14 this morning. 
You can't wait. And so I don't want you to hold on any longer. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. And we're going to spend just a few minutes. We're going to start in verse 53 of Mark 14. And we're going to skip down a bit. Don't worry. We're going to have class after this. We're going to cover the middle ground during class. There's going to be a lot that's going on. But there's one individual in particular I want to look at. And we're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. We're going to start in verse 53, and I'm going to read 53 and 54. And then we're going to jump down to verse 66. But let's start here. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief, uh, chief priest, and the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards. And warmed himself by the fire. I want to stop for just a second and relocate ourselves. Where were we? What's the context? They just came from the garden not long before. We know what happened at the arrest. But remember before that, Peter, James, and John were invited by Jesus to go in the garden. To stay there with him while he prayed. And while Jesus was praying, they were sleeping. They were confused, and they were sorrowful, and they were overwhelmed, and the response was, I just can't take it, and it was exhausting, and they kept falling asleep. And Jesus would come back and say, stay awake, pray that you don't fall into temptation, and they kept falling asleep. And finally, Jesus says, the time has come. Here comes my accuser. And who shows up but Judas, the one who would betray? And all of a sudden, the tables have turned. You see, you remember the priest, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, they wanted Jesus dead, but they decided we can't do it now. It's too risky. Too many people like Jesus. And so instead, they get Judas to flip. For 30 coins. And all of a sudden they can take Jesus. And we'll talk about this in class. But Jesus was supposed to be allowed certain privileges as a human in that time. And over and over again he was denied those. But they're going to take Jesus. Before they take Jesus... Peter's going to pull out his sword. We know this according to the Gospel of John. He's going to cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus is going to reach down and pick up that ear and put it right back on. And then, to fulfill Scripture, they ran. Even one of them, according to Mark, ran leaving his clothes because somebody had grabbed his outer garments. We talked a little bit about that last week, of who that might have been. And I'm not going to tell you because you have to go to class to figure that out. And so they all run. And why does Peter show up? I'm curious. Why, why, does, why does Peter show up? Is he curious? Is he emboldened? Is he looking for an opportunity to fight for Jesus? To stand up for Him? In this, these middle verses, 
We have lots of people come and give testimony about Jesus. None on behalf of Jesus. All of them come up and start telling all these lies. But they're so bad at their lies that they can't even collaborate, corroborate with one another. It's just confusing. But Peter's still there. Listen, as we pick up in verse 66, it says, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow was one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He was giving himself away with his accent. They knew who he was. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. One of the Gospels actually indicate that at that moment, Peter looked up and saw Jesus looking at him. And then the guilt, and then the shame. And I think about that often. I think about the shame that Peter felt. And I'm struck with one statement that Mark made that Peter was following Jesus. It says that, verse 54, Peter followed Jesus, him. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Do you follow Jesus? That's not a hypothetical. That's a real question. Do you follow Jesus? Do you? Is he the one you want to follow? Is he the one that you want to talk to, that that you adore, that you worship, that you pray to? Does the name of Jesus come out of your mouth when you're not in this building? Do you sing to him when nobody else is around, when somebody's not leading you into it? When you say his name outside of this building... Is it out of adoration or sarcasm or vulgarity? Do you follow Jesus? See, here's the deal. It's easy to follow Jesus. But Mark reminds us. No, no, no. He he cautions us. It's one thing to follow Jesus. But how closely? 
How close do you really want to follow Jesus? You see, some of us have convinced ourselves, we've justified to ourselves that, that maybe we'll follow Jesus, but let's stay back just a little bit. Because you just never know what's going to happen. Because following Jesus can be embarrassing sometimes. Following Jesus can be difficult Sometimes following Jesus may be easy to do, but it's hard to actually follow through. Things like loving enemies, forgiving your sister, showing kindness and patience, having joy in your life. That's what Jesus did, and we should follow Him. But sometimes it's easy getting caught up and not following too closely. Because it's safe. Because it's easier. And if people ask you if you're following Jesus, you can say yes. Some of you young guys are about to graduate in just a few months. And you get to head off to school. And mom and dad are going to ask the question. They want to know, how are you doing spiritually and you can throw out the easy answer yeah I'm going to church but that's not the real question the question is are are you following Jesus or are you keeping your distance see that's the problem with Peter and that's the problem with me and that might be the problem with you is that I'll follow Jesus, but I need to keep my distance. Don't get too close. Because if, if you get too close, something bad might happen. It, it just isn't safe anymore. Just yesterday... Gracie went with some of her friends and went to go watch a movie. This is kind of a big deal in the Crumb House. Our youngest one is now getting to go watch movies with, with one of her little uh, uh, friends and, and parents. They, they went to go see and maybe several others. They all met together. It, there was no boys, so we're good, thank, thankfully. But, but they, they're going there, and they decided they were going to go see um, the, the new Hunger Games movie. And mom and I, as soon as she left, Jennifer and I was like, she's not going to like that movie. She came back and she said, I did not like that movie. But I love the Hunger Games because it's based on the premise of what do you do when you're forced to do something that you don't really want to do? What happens if you're a kind, peaceful person and somebody says, if you want to live, that person has to die? Now, we don't have to deal with that today, thankfully. That's maybe when you're married, sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? But what do you do when you're forced to do something you don't want to? You weigh the risks. Is this who I am? Is this who I want to be? You see, Jim Plin had that question on his mind when he called off the search. And he says, I can't do it. It's just risky. And Peter did it. 
at that fire. I can't get any closer. It's just too risky. And then there's you. What do you do with Jesus? Are you willing to risk? Are you willing to love and to forgive? Are you just crazy enough that you could leave this building and talk about Jesus and put a smile on your face and when everybody's mad and bitter and angry and complaining, you can look at them and say, you know what? I love the Lord and I refuse to hate people who are different than me. How closely will you follow? And that's where we're going to end. We're going to end right here. I, I don't know what that answer is for you. I just want you to ask the question, how close will I follow Jesus? Is he really worth the risk? I want you to think about this morning. But right now we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. We call it the invitation song. We invite you to respond. Maybe it's coming forward. Maybe it's to be where you are that you want to commit to following to Jesus. Maybe you've never really followed him and you want to just commit your life. We will fill up the baptistry. You don't have to sit down. You're doing great. Eddie's already ready. That's good. We'll fill up this baptistry and you can go down and be baptized in Jesus. You can continue on that walk to Jesus. Whatever it is, we invite you to do it this morning as we stand and sing.